If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 168 of the Leading Learning Podcast, where we welcome back for a third time Rohit Bargava. Rohit is a best-selling author, a keynote speaker, an educator, a trend curator, and an all-around interesting guy to talk to. And Salisa, you got to speak with Rohit this time around. It, it may be obvious what you covered, but I'll ask anyway, what did you cover? Well, I think we would have to say it's a non-obvious because for the past eight years, Rohit has published an annual list of 15 non-obvious trends that he believes will shape the business world in the year to come. And he and I focused our conversation on the latest incarnation of that work, non-obvious, how to predict trends and win the future, which was officially released on January 1st, 2019. And Rohit and I touch on three specific trends, innovation envy, passive loyalty, and artificial influence. And I see all three of these having really clear implications for professionals working in the business of lifelong learning, professional development, and continuing education. Rohit and I also talk more broadly about the evolving need for curation and the evolving role of humans in curation. Well, I'm always amazed every year when Rohit comes out with his his new list of trends. I mean, we know his process. He's gone over his process in the podcast. He's talked about it at the Leading Learning Symposium, but I don't think anybody applies that process quite the way that he does. So I'm always fascinated every year. You're just covering three here. Obviously, there, there are a lot more that uh, folks can dig into. But for now, let's get to those three and to the interview with Rohit Bargava. Hello and welcome. I'm Salisa Steele. This is the Leading Learning Podcast, and today I'm joined by Rohit Bargava. Rohit is multifaceted, multi-talented, and if you're a longtime listener, you know his name, as this is his third time as a guest on this show. Rohit is the Wall Street Journal bestselling author of five books on branding, leadership, and trends. He's a speaker and has delivered keynote presentations in 32 countries. He's an educator, currently teaching storytelling and marketing at Georgetown University, and he's a trend curator, and more on that shortly. Rohit, welcome back to the Leading Learning Podcast. Thank you. It's uh, great to be a three-time guest. I yes. love that. <laughs> <laughs> well, so to, to start us off, I, you know shared a little bit about your background and what you do, but I want to give you a chance to say a bit more about yourself. What what else would you highlight for listeners? I think that's great. I'd love to just uh, get into the uh, uh, into the conversation because I think a lot of that will come out then. So the less uh, upfront about <laughs> okay. me, the better. <laughs> All right. Well, great. Well, so for the past eight years, you've published an annual list of 15 trends that you think will shape the business world in the year to come. And the latest incarnation of that work, non-obvious, how to predict trends and win the future, was released officially on January 1st, 2019. So at this point, you've been curating for a long time. Have you seen people's desire for curation grow? Are they more interested in using curation to find what's meaningful and valuable and reliable amidst the increasing noise? And if you do see a kind of increased interest in, in curation, um, you know, what are the signs? Um, you know, how, how do you see that there is this growing interest? 
yeah, I think there definitely has been a, a growth in interest, but I think it's something that, uh, interestingly, we've we've always done to some degree. I mean, we've always had information that we've had to go through. Um, we've always had to figure out what was important and what wasn't. Um, I think what's different now and what's grown over the last eight years is this willingness to describe it in this way. Because I think that you know, eight or ten years ago, if you said curation, people would think of a museum. Um, and they would think of someone who decides what art goes on the walls. And I think now there's a growing sense of, oh, this is uh, a technique. This is something that, yeah, curators do, obviously, in museums. But curation of ideas, curation of stories, curation of figuring out what to pay attention to, I mean, that's something that is a skill that increasingly we all need because of so much stuff that's coming at us. Well, so let's dig into uh, a few of the 15 trends that you address in the 2019 version of non-obvious. And one of the trends that I was particularly interested in is what you call innovation envy. Could you give us sort of the the short version of what innovation envy is? Yeah, this was interesting because uh, one of the things that uh, we do a lot is is spend time testing ideas and and being in front of groups and and, uh, companies talking about how they're looking at something like innovation. And I was going to all of these different talks and doing these keynotes and listening to what people were saying. And so much of it was looking at someone else and saying, oh, these guys over here, whether they were in the industry or not, are doing all of these things. And so we need to do that too. Mm -hmm. And innovation envy was a way of describing this sort of, oh, we need to do this because we see somebody else doing it kind of mentality that I think was perfectly encompassed with um, workplace culture, if you think about it. So, you know, people were looking at Google um, and seeing that they had uh, those segues and ping pong tables and beanbag chairs and, um, you know, and a day off uh, a week for supposedly thinking about whatever they wanted. And all of a sudden, all these companies were like, let's go get some beanbag chairs, right? Like, <laughs> we, need, we need a little bit of that. Um, and they were just slapping this stuff in there, and they were creating innovation labs, right, which were just like nice lighting and, and you know, more colorful paint. Mm. Um, and you can imagine how uh, much that actually translated into <laughs> real innovation, right? Because, you know, a lot of times what they were doing is saying, well, let's be innovative. And their solution for being more innovative was to hire a couple people, stick them in an innovation group, and give them no funding, and say, okay, now go make the rest of us innovative. Um, And that doesn't work. Yeah. Well, and part of why I wanted to talk about innovation and be is because I think we see sort of a lot of chasing um, after the latest innovations in the learning space and whether that's, you know, micro learning or digital badges or virtual reality or gamification. And not that any of those things in and of themselves is necessarily bad or necessarily good. It's just the problem, though, that it can be kind of aping others, uh, you know, organizations um, that sort of innovate for the sake of change rather than for the sake of doing something better. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, what suggestions might you have for how organizations can kind of dodge the dangers of innovation envy when they're actually trying to innovate? There, there's a couple. Um, so one is uh, to look at what your actual intent is. Um, and so if you think about innovation as a broad idea and you said to anybody who's leading a team or leading a company, do you want to be more innovative? Obviously the answer is yes. Mm. Um, but what some people mean by that is, Oh, we have a bunch of old products and we need new products. So we have to innovate to come up with something new. 
What other people mean is, oh, we need to have a more innovative workforce because all of the people who are under 40 years old are leaving after two years. So we have to be able to keep those people and we're not being able to keep those people. Sometimes when they're talking about innovation, what they mean is we need to actually start listening to our customers more because we're not aligned with our customers and we need to change the way that we do that. So there's lots of reasons for innovation, um, but just putting it on a pedestal and saying, let's be more innovative without actually knowing what the reason for it is, um, is the biggest mistake. Um, and so that, you know, the, the correction to that is probably pretty clear, right? Figure out what the reason is why you need to be innovative and then uh, instead of just chasing that as a vague idea, um, put something in place that helps you achieve what you actually need. Mm-hmm. So innovation as part of uh, a means to an end, being really clear on why you're looking to innovate. Yeah, exactly. Exactly, exactly. And if you're clear on the ends for your learning business and looking for the means to get there, check out our sponsor for this quarter. Blue Sky eLearn is the creator of the Path Learning Management System, an award-winning cloud-based learning solution that allows organizations to easily deliver, track, and monetize valuable education and event content online. Blue Sky also provides webinar and webcast services, helping you maximize your content and create a deeper engagement with your audience across the world. To find out more about Blue Sky eLearn and everything they offer, visit leadinglearning.com slash blue sky. And now, back to Salisa's conversation with Rohit as they turn to a new non-obvious trend. Well, so I know that um, another of the trends that you highlight in the 2019 non-obvious is passive loyalty. Um, And so I'm hoping you could just talk a little bit about how active loyalty differs from passive loyalty. Yeah, passive loyalty is um, widespread. Um, and what it means and, and the principle it describes is this situation where you assume someone is loyal just because they're a, they're a repeat purchaser or because they've been a customer for a long time. And we're really good at assigning this tag of loyalty to someone based on these behaviors we see maybe in a spreadsheet or we see over a span of time. The problem is that that person oftentimes is loyal out of something else. Loyal out of convenience, loyal out of price, loyal out of laziness. Mm. Um, you know, if I work somewhere in, let's say, downtown DC, and on my drive home, there's a gas station that's on the right-hand side, so it's easy for me to go and get gas. I go there every time to get gas. They think I'm loyal. But then uh-huh. as soon as I change the job, you know, I don't go that way anymore. Or if there's construction, now I don't go that way anymore, and I leave. And I don't care, Right. And so the the difference is uh, that I might be loyal out of convenience, but I don't actually care. And that's what this trend calls passive loyalty, whereas active loyalty is I actually care. I might go out of my way to go somewhere versus somewhere else. I actually see that brand and think, you know, this is this is a brand that I truly love. And so the biggest tip that um, that this trend talks about, and as you as you saw in the book, like every one of these trends is not just an academic description. There's real actionable tips for how to use each one, right? And for passive loyalty, the way to use that is to first of all figure out of these customers that you're thinking are loyal, how many are passively loyal and how many are actively loyal. Yeah, and I think that's that's great because uh, we again in sort of our space and among learning businesses. I think sometimes there's maybe an overemphasis on things like convenience, like cost, um, and even on like the credit that they can get um, for it. And and so I'm thinking that 
there's a potential for those things at best to get passive loyalty from from learners and, and customers, um, and that if we really want to get to active loyalty, it, it may actually involve challenging learners, you know, making some things a little bit uh, harder because we know that sometimes effort is what's required for learning to really hit home. Um, and, and that that willingness to challenge people may kind of come at, uh, at loggerheads with some of what we've tended to emphasize, that cost and that convenience to make something cheap or likable. Um, and, and so, I just really admired and, and found valuable uh, ideas within that uh, idea of active versus passive loyalty and really trying to get clear on, okay, who is a really loyal customer? Who is an actively loyal customer versus who is passively loyal? They need that credit or it's the most convenient workshop because like you're saying, it's uh, it's on their right-hand way as they go home, just like the gas station. <laughs> um well, so one of the other trends, and this is the last one that I wanted to ask you about specifically, is um, artificial influence. Um, and we know that influence can play a really big role in learning, and so it seems that there's the potential for artificial influence to lead to false learning. And so I would love for you to, again, kind of explain f- for listeners what artificial influence is and, and what you see as the challenges and opportunities um, for artificial influence, and maybe particularly in the realm of lifelong learning? Um, artificial intelligence was uh, probably one of the trends that led to the most fascinating stories as I was doing some research, uh, because it was <clears throat> there were so many ways that, that it was uh, starting to, to happen. So, for example, there were uh, concerts that are coming from holographic versions of mm. celebrities who died, like Amy Winehouse. It's pretty and, amazing. <laughs> yeah, it is amazing, right? And and if you're a fan of some of these music, like they're saying that Michael Jackson could come back like as a hologram and and you know, not as like a virtual show, like you would have a real show with a real band and real backup dancers in a real uh um concert hall or in a real uh theater with a holographic version of Michael Jackson. Um and you know that moment combine that with this idea in social media increasingly that there's more and more of these fabricated individuals who are influencers even though they've been totally made up mm-hmm. um, right so there's like made up fashion influencers who are virtual uh, avatars basically and they try on different fashion brands and they uh, get sponsorship money by fashion brands to actually promote these brands on social media and so all of these things were kind of pointing to this sense that we are influenced by some things that that aren't real, um, that are made up. And I think the application, as you um, uh, asked um, around learning, is, you know, who do we trust and what information do we trust and where is it coming from and who's an authoritative uh, source um, for us when it comes to how we get our information. And I think one of the biggest uh, challenges around this is that it's really hard to tell now mm. um, because of this whole rise of uh, deep fakes, for example, which is the phrase being used for these videos that are doctored so that it's very hard to tell whether it's a real video or whether it's something made up. Um, and that technology is only going to get better, uh, which means that you might watch a video of something and think that this is uh, for example, a politician saying something when actually somebody just made that video um, and changed it uh, to be, you know, to to be manipulative. And I think that this is a, a 
um, a reality that we have to teach ourselves. Um, and in particular, I mean, I know we're not really talking about this aspect of it, but our children, um, you know, this is something that we have to teach ourselves and our children um, to be wary of, right? Because uh, there is a lot of not trustworthy stuff out there that's artificial. Yeah, it's uh, it's that next generation of, you know, my kids come home from school and their teachers sort of say they can't use Wikipedia as a reference in one of their papers. This is that that next level of it's going to get harder and harder to really tell what is a, is a great source. And of course, I don't necessarily agree that Wikipedia shouldn't be used as, as a source, but it gets back to we all have to kind of apply um, some some critical thinking uh, of our own to understand what is uh, a legitimate, what is an authoritative source. And yeah, it's going to get harder and harder. So, you know, we have artificial influence um, and, and you, uh, you know, we, this sort of has some overlaps with, with artificial intelligence. And, um, and so if we talk about that for a minute, I'm thinking that with the raise with the rise of ai of of the artificial intelligence do you think that the human role uh, in curation will change well the kinds of things that you're doing or that others should be doing or need to do around curation will that change is it possible that the human role in curation will disappear uh well i think it already is changing um uh and i think that it will it will have to continue to change i think that there are places where the human role will disappear, um, and I'm I'm not one of those people that believes like, well, you know, this stuff is not going to cause a lot of disruption um, because like people will always be there. Uh, I think in certain situations, people won't always be there. Um, I think that there's many roles and functions of banking that will be totally automated. I mean, because the thing is like, no one wants to stand in line and interact with someone to get cash. Mm. It's much better to go to an ATM. Um, and there's no situation where you'd rather stand in line and, and you know talk to somebody about that. Maybe you'd want to talk to someone in general, uh, but not about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that those automated, highly repetitive things that that are better automated um, will be. But I think there is continuing now to be a correction between the things that we want to be automated and every situation that is increasingly being automated where sometimes we're like, you know what, I want to deal with someone. So for example, you think about the checkout line at a grocery store and how increasingly at many grocery stores, like there's this automated self-checkout. But there was a grocery brand in the UK that created what they called a slow checkout line. And it was for people who have dementia or older people who needed a little bit more help. Um, That was perfect for Mm. that environment because sometimes people want a more human experience and they need a more human experience and that'll continue to be the case. So when you asked about curation, you know, a lot of times curation is a very individual thing, right? I'm curating what I'm going to pay attention to. And so that's always going to be done by me. Now I might use technology. I mean, we all to some degree are getting information filtered through technology, right? There's stories that I'll never see because they're not in the publications that I read mm-hmm. or they're not known by the people that I meet. So there are stories in other places of the world that are being curated away from me, right? Because I don't have a way of finding them. Um, it's not like I can see every story ever published everywhere, um, easily at least. Um, so that I think is already happening. Salisa and Rohit's discussion of artificial intelligence brings to mind the work of our sponsor for this quarter, 
Authentic Learning Labs is an education company seeking to bring complementary tech and services to empower publishers and L&D organizations to elevate their programs. The company leverages technology like AI, data analytics, and advanced embeddable API-based services to complement existing initiatives, offering capabilities that are typically out of reach for resource-stretched groups or growing programs needing to scale. Find out more at leadinglearning.com slash authentic. And now, back to Salisa's conversation with Rohit as they turn to talking about how a team, like an education department, versus an individual might curate trends. I really noticed in this uh, issue of the of non-obvious in the 2019 version that, that you talk about your team at, at various points. And I was just wondering how trend curation and that haystack method that that you talk about, um, how that works in a in a communal setting, um, and I'm thinking in particular about how you know an education team or department might be able to work together to curate collectively. Yeah, there's there's a couple of ways. I mean, one is um, sharing idea collections, um, and so I, one of the things I'm fond of telling people is that uh, there's a huge value in starting to collect ideas the way we collect frequent flyer miles. Because if you think about the, the way we collect frequent flyer miles, we do it consistently over a long period of time, and then eventually we get enough to cash them in and go somewhere. And I like to think of ideas that way because I'm collecting ideas all the time. My team is collecting ideas all the time, and we have central places where we can collect them so that at that moment when we're going through all these ideas and quote-unquote cashing them in, in my case – we happen to be cashing them in for trends and to come up with patterns between the ideas. Um, in other cases, people are collecting these ideas so that when they do have that brainstorm around that new thing or they're planning their new strategy for the next year, they have a collection of ideas to come back to. That's great to think about it, right? That the, You collect the ideas and then they can have uh, different applications. So there's uh, uh, the idea of you begin with the ideas, they might turn into trend curation might turn into new product ideas, might turn into strategy for a new year. Um, and you don't know. You, that's why you're collecting and you're collecting broadly so that then you have them to draw on at the moment of need when you're thinking about a specific situation. Yeah, exactly. Well, and so you know, you've, you've already mentioned it yourself. Though. I mean, one of the things I always admire about what you do is that you're, you're not just talking about the trends in any sort of abstract or you know purely academic way, but you're thinking about how to apply those trends. And I know that you include um, you know some ideas for uh, how to use the trend after you've talked about artificial influence or you know passive versus active loyalty. You'll have some thoughts about how that trend might play out. Do you have a process for coming up with those types of, of suggestions or, or what suggestions do you have for those of, of us reading and thinking about uh, trends, how we might kind of get from those trends to the application for our work in our organizations, in our lives? Yeah, I'd say that the um, – so like you said, at the end of every trend chapter, there is uh, a couple of bullet points on how to use that particular trend. And that's probably this section of the book that is the most collaborative um, mm -hmm. between like editors and various members of my team. Because once we're identifying the trend and then I'm writing about it and pulling all these examples together, 
the moment when the other team members get to read some of that and start thinking about in their world of working with companies and doing the consulting or workshops or you know any of the stuff that they do, um, how would someone use this? Uh, and that's kind of how we come up with the how to use the trend. Um, that and sometimes we'll start previewing some of the trends a little bit early and talk to uh, actual companies about you know what does this mean? How would you start to use it? Um, so that's the other way that we kind of come up with what these would be. All right. So beginning to to share the ideas and then talk uh, about implications. So this is where it sounds like the the team effort really uh, can help bear bear fruit there. Yes. And so for the next to last question, as we're beginning to wrap up, we're going to switch gears a little bit. I want to ask you a question um, that we ask of all guests coming on the Leading Learning Podcast, at least of late. I think it's a new question since the last time you were on. But what what it's focused on is your personal learning. And in particular, what's one of the most powerful learning experiences you've been involved in as an adult since finishing your formal education? Um, I would say this is probably not an uncommon uh, answer, but w- the most powerful learning experiences for you, for me, have been when I became a teacher, when I became a professor, um, mm. because it forces you to relearn stuff that you know really well, because now you've got to teach it to somebody else, and you've got to do it at a high level. Um, and I'm lucky because I'm challenged by master's uh, level students. So, you know, these are not students who just came out of out of high school. Not that, you know, they don't have great questions, too. But um, when they're a master's level student, I mean, many of these students are pretty much the same age that I am. Um, they've had the same work level of work experience. And so the way that they're seeing the world is very similar to me. And so to go and stand in front of someone like that and say, I have something to teach you mm-hmm. um, and I'm going to do it well, uh, is a, uh, daunting challenge, right? Yeah. And one that takes a lot of preparation. So when I started my new course, um, which is all about storytelling and public speaking, you know, at that point I'd been speaking professionally on, on lots of stages, but I felt like if I was going to teach this, like I had to get even better. And so during, it was funny because the first semester that I taught that class during the class, um, like during the time of the class, it was once a week and it was a a summer course. Um, so we met on every Tuesday and one weekend during that class, I went to an intensive training on being a better speaker and performer while I was teaching it. Mm. So, and then I came back from that and I told my students, I said, look, I'm teaching this at, um, you know, uh, to, to all of you who are very experienced professionals at a great university and I'm still going back to class for it. Uh, and the point of that is you're never good enough. Um, you can always get better and you always have to reinvest in getting better, even if you think that somebody that you're looking at up there is like, oh man, he's, you know, he's, he's really great and he's charging all this money and, you know, teaching us how to do this, but even he's still trying to get better. Mm, it's a great uh, story about the value of, of ongoing learning, of lifelong learning. So final question is, if listeners want to know more about you and your work, where would you suggest they go? Uh, you can definitely go to my uh, personal site to watch uh, videos and all sorts of stuff. It's just rohitbargava.com. Uh, or you can go to nonobviouscompany.com and there's a bunch of resources there. There's downloads. There's even an interactive trend experience that we just produced um, with Microsoft that takes all the data and all the past trends and has all these like links and relationships. So you can click on one and then go to the next and it's really kind of cool. 
So um, there's lots of resources there. Well, great. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Rohit. I enjoyed the conversation as always. Me too. Thank you. That wraps up our interview with Rohit Bargava. To get show notes for this episode, just go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 168. And when you check out the show notes, you're going to see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of what you hear, we would be truly grateful if you would subscribe as it helps us to get some data on the impact of what we're doing. And we'd also be grateful if you take just a minute to give us a rating on iTunes or for that matter on any other service that you use to listen to the podcast. If you are using iTunes or Apple Podcasts, just go to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes. Salisa and I personally appreciate your rating and review, but even more importantly, those reviews and ratings play an important role in helping the podcast to show up when people search for content on the business of lifelong learning. We'd be grateful if you would check out our sponsors for this quarter. You can find out more about Authentic Learning Labs at leadinglearning.com authentic and find out what Blue Sky eLearn has to offer at leadinglearning.com slash bluesky. Finally, consider telling others about the podcast. You can send out a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share, and you can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash learning. And of course, you can share us there with others. However you do it, please do help to share the good word about leading learning. Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.